You're listening to the Political People Podcast. We bring you interviews and discussions with progressive politicians, candidates, authors, and other political people. Thank you for listening. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I still have a dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created Join the political revolution. This is Ian Scott with Political People Blog. We are joined today by community organizer and civil rights activist, DeRay McKesson. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. DeRay, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks so much. Now, sir, um, why do you think people have such a negative and visceral reaction to discussing racial disparities? And why does the mainstream media tend to prioritize stigmatization of protesters instead of shedding light on the why behind the protest? You know, when I think about protests, and I think about the movement, so much of it has been about telling the truth in public. And there are people whose careers, whose livelihoods, whose money have been conditioned on the fact that this truth-telling doesn't happen. You know, you think about the prison industry, people make a lot of money off of it. There are people uh, who think about police violence. There are people who benefit from there being no rules and no structures. And the protests just shatter that. The protests redefine the public fears. I think that people... Uh, who benefit from these systems of oppression uh, get nervous about the protest shedding light on so much. And that's why I think that people, uh, in the beginning, were not quick to support the protests. Now it's changed because people understand that the crisis is much closer to them than they originally thought. Uh, but in those early days, people did not yet uh, accept that. I see. Now, um, as a prominent community organizer and, and civil rights advocate, um, from whom do you draw both your civil rights and political inspirations? Uh, so many people. I think about Diane Nash, meeting her was one of, was one of the you know, most powerful uh, meetings I had. She was really thoughtful and she said, uh, you know, she had, if she had believed uh, all of the advice that she got from everybody, she never would have started. Uh, and, and so much of what the freedom fighters and the training are just so disciplined, and that was really important and powerful. Uh, so I, that, that sticks with me. Um, and then so many, uh, some of the most influential people I've met have been sort of the protesters, right? Like people I've met in streets, uh, in communities, in neighborhoods who have been willing to put everything on the line because they know that they must fight. Sure. And they must push back. What do you envision as the future of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, Campaign Zero? And um, how do you perceive these movements have influenced progressive politics so far? You know, when I think about the movement, two things come next. One is the ability to build coalitions. Can we create entrances to the movement space for people who might not have the same goals but have the same outcomes? You think about the gun control activists don't have the same goals, but we all want to live in the same world without mass uh, mass shootings. You think about the environmental 
as activists don't have the same goals. We all want to live in the same world without dirty water, like in Flint. And the second is, uh, well, the, can the inside game be as strong as the outside game? So it's important that people continue to push from the outside. It's also important that people implement the change on the inside, and can we do that work? It's one of the reasons why I'm running for mayor. And then it, uh, when we think about pushing for progressive politics, if these conversations are race, and especially policing criminal justice, are happening in public in ways that they have never happened in my generation, and that is really powerful. And it is everyday people who are participating, who understand that they have voice, uh, and that is probably one of the most significant things in the movement, how a new community has formed as a result of protests. Absolutely, and uh, I actually really ag- agree with everything you, you just said there. Um, I was also wondering, um, do you foresee um, this civil rights force being translated into, say, a um, a sort of a left's answer to the Tea Party on the right, a sort of um, a political um, pack of, uh, of interests that will um, have an exertive force on democratic policies in the future? I think there's a lot of room here uh, for growth to see what comes next. Um, I think that the type of organizing is so different. This decentralized model is really uh, is really powerful and really different. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room left uh, for, it, for it to grow. Um, and the cool thing, the powerful thing that we keep seeing is that, like, that the movement is young, that people continue to innovate. You think about the organizers in Chicago, you think about organizers in Minneapolis, like people are just doing such good work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I honestly, I have to say that um, having reviewed your mayoral platform, I don't think I've ever seen a more innovative set of policy proposals from a single aspiring politician, <laughs> It's especially not at the mayoral level. Now, um, who are among your advisors um, on the myriad of issues you seek to uh, address in Baltimore? Oh, so many people. So there's a, I have a strong national uh, policy person, young man who's 25 and amazing, and then a strong local uh, policy advisor who I've known for so long uh, who's focused on issues of children and families. And then I have a host of people around the city who have who given feedback. So before I put the platform out, I probably talked to a 20, 30 business owners, community leaders, uh, policy experts. And we actually had a Google Doc where people could put their feedback in, and, uh, and we went from there. So it's really powerful. I uh, got a lot of feedback to get me to this and spent a lot of time um, trying to make sure that I understood uh, that I understood the work really well. Yeah. Absolutely, and um, I'm sure that, um, I mean, if I, if I just look at how comprehensive this, this mayoral platform is, um, it's, kind of, um, it's kind of humbling in a way, because um, I have to say, um, looking at it, you know, um, I think that there, there may be something of a future for this, um, this, this, this crowdsource sort of um, platform, because... Um, my understanding, and um, I'm sure you'd probably agree with me on the decentralization of um, of the Black Lives Matter movement and Campaign Zero, and how that translates to a mayoral run. Um, I'm sure we can come to some sort of agreement that um, this could be a sort of um, a model um, campaign, if you will, for um, for others, um, not only in the movement but in the greater progressive field as well. Yeah. 
No, I think that there's a, you know, people from all over the country who reached out about the platform. I, I've been really, you know, proud of it. I think it is the right stuff. I, um, and I know it well, you know. It is, I didn't put forth ideas that I didn't understand. And that's really important to be. Mayors should be able to talk about policy. They should understand how all of, uh, the initiatives link together. And they should be accountable for it. They should know uh, how to make decisions at scale. And, and in Baltimore, you know, if we don't address our issues at scale, we'll never, we have scale solutions for our scale problems. We will never get out of the, the crisis that we're in in so many areas. And, you know, we have talent in the city. But what we don't have is a plan. Right. And, um, you know, I have to thank you very much for having the courage to use that, that crowdsourced, um, decentralized model. Now, uh, m many, many elements of your mayoral platform, um, with regard to, uh, reparations, they, um, they seem to be creating this, um, new intentional system of systemic and structural investments in communities that have been, um, underinvested. Um, I was wondering if um, your mayoral terms in Baltimore um, should be seen as a case study on the efficacy of these reparative policies. Yeah, you know, when I think about reparations, reparations is about acknowledgement and repair. And you can't address what you, you know, can't fix what we don't address. And uh, what the platform does is say, here are the issues, here are the focus areas, here are the priorities. Acknowledging uh, that these are systemic, and the repair has to be systemic. So when you think about Matt Stevens' accounts, when we think about ending cash bail, uh, home visit strategy for a whole city, adult literacy, uh, addiction, like these are these are scale solutions, um, and that's really important to me. I, I think it can be a model. I, I think that it's important that they're all in one place so people can see how you actually implement this in a concrete way at the city level. Um, and I think it's important that people have these conversations. You know, I've been in so many uh, conversations while, you know, as I've been running where people hadn't thought about the interconnectedness of the work, uh, and I'm able to help them do that. And I'm, I'm even able to get pushed on how I think about it, and that's really important to me. Absolutely. And um, now, in your education and youth development plan, you cite, quote, um, current legal and accountability frameworks, end quote, that limit the ability of municipal intervention. Um, is this primarily a Baltimore issue, or is this endemic of many metropolitan cities? And um, how will you work as mayor to remedy this issue? Yeah, so in Baltimore, you know, the, the, the mayor doesn't manage school systems, so that is what that's referencing, uh, that there's, like, limited, that, that there's just limited ability to... Uh, to manage the day-to-day -day of schools. Uh, but there are some things that we can do around literacy, that we can do around uh, pre-K and, and zero to three. Um, so I'm calling for explicitly to change the funding formula, to rethink the governance model. Uh, and these are things that we can do now um, in terms of changing the system structure, which is important. Absolutely. And um, further related to the intent of, um, of this policy, um, there was recently a study done, um, it was quoted on uh, Freakonomics, uh, and what it said was um, underserved um, um, lower socioeconomic and minority communities, um, there's, a, there's a massive disparity in the words that they hear in the family from that, um, during that pre-K period compared to um, 
um, other demographics. Now, um, I was wondering if this, um, if this sort of intent um, has been uh, informative in your pre-K framework as well. appreciate that you've you've come out on these issues now um, cited in your mayoral platform uh, quote um, according to the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce by 2020 um, 69 percent of uh, Maryland will require some training beyond high school um, when it comes to the workforce um, the graph related to this issue shows an almost unbelievable racial disparity in education at the bachelor's degree level. Um, your platform has many remedies for this issue, but uh, when would you estimate we can begin to see progress on making up um, some of the education gaps should you be elected mayor? You know, I think that you can see progress in, in hopefully uh, three to five years. You know, it is... If we can create, we have to create the coalition that is willing to do what's right um, at scale, right? So, 200 people, um, 200 people closing the literacy gap isn't gonna, it's just not at scale. Uh, but we could target every single adult who is not functionally literate in trying to roll them. Like that, it'll have to be a solution that that we have not seen done in a city like ours before. Um, and then I think there will see impact. You know, if we do it in a piecemeal approach, like 100 each year, it'll, I think that the impact will be negligible, um, and it just won't be fair to what people need. Sure. Absolutely. And um, I've noticed um, a lot of these, um, these issues here, uh, when it comes to college and career readiness, um, and uh, the greater economics uh, of creating jobs, um, all of these issues, it seems like um, there are resources that are available, but it, it seems like uh, for some reason or another, it's um, it's not a political priority, or there's um, there's lack of, as you say, at scale um, cooperation. Um, what do you think the primary um, 
stumbling block or uh, resistance is in the current system to implementing these policies? Well, I mean, some of it is like there are mayors who just don't know policy really well. So what you find in cities is that it really is the chief of staff or somebody who is making most of the strategic decisions, and I think that's a real loss. Um, the second is that there are, that it's, uh, the thing about plans means that they, that there have to, plans require priorities, uh, and I think it's politically safer for some people to not prioritize, to I not see. say we're going to actually. Uh, we're not going to do, we're going to do this in this way. That means we're going to touch this neighborhood then and another neighborhood later. Uh, but we have to do that if we're ever going to actually address the problem. Absolutely. And um, further from your platform, <clears throat> and also echoing many of the policies proposed in Campaign Zero, <clears throat> it seems your justice and safety reform proposals would require a significant overhaul of the relationship between officer and citizen. Now, <clears throat> How much resistance do you anticipate to face in enacting these proposals, and what is your game plan for creating cons consensus? Yeah, I think there's actually already consensus in the public. Uh, the things I'm calling for, I think, are really actually simple. It's uh, confusing why they aren't done. So in, you know, in Baltimore, if an officer's involved in a deadly shooting, like the officers killed two people uh, the other day, uh, they can't be drug tested as a part of the investigation, and that just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, Baltimore hog tying and, and uh, chokehold and not against policy, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, so, so, yeah, you know, I think that I think that there is consensus. I met with the FOP, the police union, and we agree on the need for a safer city. We don't agree on the details. Sure. Uh, but I think that the public agrees. Uh, on, on all the things that I'm putting forward. Right. Now, um, I guess um, I would say uh, what sort of internal resistance um, you'd find in the Baltimore PD, the DA's office, the, um, the, the chambers of power. What sort of uh, resistance do you an anticipate from, from those shareholders? Yeah, you know, I think that there, people are always, uh, I think that change is hard for people, even people who sort of want it sometimes. I can see there being some questions around logistics that people are struggling with, but the reality is in Baltimore, people have acknowledged that the system is broken. I think that people have been slow to offer solutions, which is why I'm offering uh, robust solutions now. Sure. Um, but I think the prosecutors know that it is, you know, they know that that the system is broken. Uh, I think they're afraid of, of pushing for change because they work so closely with the police. But again, this is about this is about the real people's lives. This is not about my friendship with people, right? Absolutely. It's about how do we make a city that works with works for people? And that's what I'm focused on, and that's why I put these ideas forth that I think are aggressive, aggressively innovative, um, and are, are the right things to do. Absolutely, and uh, I I very much appreciate your courage in that, Duray. Now, um, a recurring theme in your platform has been civic and business partnerships together with philanthropic organizations. Is your objective, uh, in effect, to, um, and I say this not in a pejorative sense, uh, to lobby for your policy platform by putting pressure on the existing status quo? I mean, that's a part of it. Again, when I think about so much of the work the last 18 months and so much work now is about telling the truth in public. And the truth is that this isn't working, right? Sure. And that we have 
offer real solutions for people. So it is about, it certainly is about putting in public uh, what the right thing to do is and how we do them. And that, that I think, is, is the beginning of the work. Absolutely. And um, elements of your platform that may be perceived as being a little bit more redistributive, like uh, the expansion of worker-owned cooperatives and rent-to-own ownership programs. Um, what sort of resistance do you anticipate from the private sector in launching these beneficial programs? Yeah, well, they're actually already happening in the city, right? So there is, we think about Red Emma's is a great, um, is a great worker-owned co-op here in the city that's a cultural space for so many people, the artists in the artist community and so many other communities. I think that they just don't get as much of visibility. I think that people don't know that they are real options, like in, in, in how they make up businesses. When we think about the ecosystem of the economy, it'll take so many types of businesses. It'll take uh, corporations, it'll take uh, small businesses, it'll take mom and pop shops, or it'll take uh, online vendors, it'll take all of these if we're going to have a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I guess when it comes to your mayoral campaign, um, what do you think has, has been the most um, humbling and uh, daunting experience of, um, of launching a, a campaign like this? The amount of money that we need is actually incredible. Um, I didn't know that fundraising would be like it is. It's just a lot of money. Absolutely. You know, um, I've seen your your campaign. Seems like it's it's done a pretty good job so far. Um, uh, if I read this correctly, it, it seems like you've had some backing, at least from um, from Netflix and um, and Twitter. Um, do you um, do you think that when it comes to these uh, these Silicon Valley companies that um, they're um, they're sort of trying to fund your campaign in a way to um, to try and democratize the process for the ideas that uh, that you're trying to espouse? You know, I think that they believe in me as a leader. Uh, and I think that I have, I think that they believe in my ability to use technology to be transformative. And I think that's why they're supporting. Um, yeah, and I, and I know that we can, you know, with, what technology does is it accelerates the pace of impact uh, for ideas and decisions, and that's really important. So, so yeah, I think that that's what they believe in. Absolutely. And um, I really appreciate your candor on these um, on these questions as well. I'm sure that if um, if we were sitting here interviewing the incumbent or um, a couple of the other candidates, um, I think they probably would be a little bit more nervous when it when it comes to progressive questions so we we very much appreciate your input no this is great i appreciate uh, the invitation to talk absolutely and um you know i was wondering um just um on the um on the issue of uh, of presidential politics we're going to go ahead and suspend the reality 
and um, just kind of get into some hypotheticals. Um, what would you say um, would be the five most important issues in the campaign platform of an ideal Democratic presidential candidate? Yeah, it's important that people, uh, that, that they address race uh, and acknowledge the systemic and structural issues that uh, negatively impact people of color uh, every day in the country. Uh, also thinking about uh, criminal justice reform and mass incarceration, knowing that mass incarceration is not just a matter of arrest, but it's about, uh, it's about rehabilitation, reentry, sentencing, bail, all of those things that come together to inform uh, the way that we think about mass incarceration and the solutions that are proposed. Uh, also, commitment to public education and, and definitely universities and colleges, and specifically HBCUs, just sort of the black universities and colleges. Um, the fourth would be a real jobs plan that thinks about how to close the racial wealth gap. And then the fifth, um, you know, it is important that the presidential candidates are really out front when they think about um, how to keep the country safe without us causing irreparable harm all around the world. Right. Absolutely. You know, um, I when I was um, looking into a little bit of your um, your your history here, I actually um, I couldn't help but notice you had a. Uh, a previous conversation with um, Mr. Edward Snowden, and um, I was wondering if if maybe you and him share some similarity when it when it comes to the the linking of the um, of the surveillance state with issues such as regime change and our foreign policy in general. I mean, I think that we. Um I think we both are interested in the issue of surveillance for, for you know, for different and similar reasons. Uh, you know, we we know the legacy of the government to spy on civil rights activists. Right. Uh, You're referring specifically and, to Martin Luther King being investigated by the FBI. Am I correct? Yeah, or all of Clint Upper, or like Fred Hampton, right? Like uh, the death of Fred Hampton. That the, the the government has always tried to thwart the. It could be the civil rights activist. Sure. We know that that has happened. So uh, I think that that is, a, that is something that we, we both agree on and understand as a real problem. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I think that that's where it starts. Absolutely. And um, thank you for that, DeRay. Now, I was wondering... Um, while you have remained neutral so far in the um, in the Democratic uh, presidential nomination process, um, do you have any intention of endorsing uh, prior to the Democratic National Convention in in July? I don't. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. I, I have met with Bernie and Hillary, uh, but we will see. Absolutely, and um, is there uh, is there anything that either candidate could do that would um, enable um, any sort of, um, of greater decision-making processes or better inform your your judgment on that issue? No, not at the time. Okay, absolutely. And thank you so much for that input. Now, um, many of us progressive Democrats 
are really excited about your personal political future. Now, um, after being prompted by a friend at Huffington Post, uh, I have to ask, um, would you ever personally uh, consider running for Congress? No, I don't know. I don't know. You know, one step at a time. I'm, I'm, I am interested in, in putting my energy and running to be the next mayor of Baltimore. Absolutely. And, um, you know, DeRay, I very much appreciate your having this conversation with us today. It's been very enlightening, very collaborative, and um, we very much appreciate your time here today, sir. Perfect. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Absolutely. Now, this is... Yes, uh, this has been Ian Scott with Political People Blog, discussing the issues that matter with DeRay McKesson, mayoral candidate for the city of, of Baltimore and civil rights activist. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you very much for listening.